Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Now, if you'll please join in the words for lighting our chalice, they're printed in your order of service. We light this chalice. Take a deep breath. Make your body and mind as still as you can. See what you can hear when you're quiet. Can you hear the rain outside? The beat of your own heart? The breath of the person next to you? Here, you can be yourself in space and time. Here, you can focus on what matters. Here, you can know you are loved even when you are challenged. Here, you can know the infinite possibility contained within you. Breathe and listen. So I don't know if any of you even know this, but we have technically had monthly themes this year for our Sunday services. They've kind of been like themes light, though, because I haven't really leaned into them hard. But this month, the theme is nourishment, and I'm sharing that with you because I was thinking about why I had chosen it a long time ago and what it means. And when I thought it through originally, I was thinking about what are the things that feed the various parts of us, right? What feeds our spirit, our soul, our heart, our mind. But this week, I was thinking more about the purpose of nourishment. We eat so that we have energy to live and move and work and play. We feed our spirits so that we have a centered place from which to live our lives We feed our soul so we can face challenges with strength. We feed our hearts so that we can then offer abundant love to others. We feed our minds so we can grow and transform and create and invent. We nourish ourselves so that we can live our lives well. But nourishment isn't about pleasure. That was the thought I had today. It's about necessity. It can be pleasurable, but nourishment is about necessity. We need to be nourished in order to live. And we need to nourish all of those parts of ourselves in order to live wholly and fully and completely. The hour that we spend together on Sunday mornings is part of that nourishment. That doesn't mean it's always perfectly pleasurable. Not everything goes down easy. It doesn't mean that this hour is exactly what we would choose if we were interested only in what feels good in the moment. Even for me. This hour isn't easy or light or happy at all times, but it is, I hope, I believe, nourishing. 
This hour, all of us hope, I think, centers your spirit, strengthens your soul, opens your heart, and challenges your mind. This hour, hopefully, helps you to live your life well the rest of your week. Please take a deep breath and settle your body. This morning, as we come into our time of quiet reflection and meditation, I have some sad news to share with you all. Our dear friend and member of this congregation, Sophie Noel, died this past Wednesday. Tomorrow, there will be time at a local funeral home for visiting with the family. That'll be from 3.30 to 6. If you want more details, you can see me or call the office. Sophie was funny and smart big-hearted and beautiful inside and out. Our thoughts and love are with her wife, Terry, and her whole family as they grieve. And this morning, we light a candle to help us hold our own grief at losing Sophie. All throughout our lives, we experience joy and pain being fully human means opening ourselves up to the ups and downs that come inevitably when we allow ourselves to care, to love. And yet we know that the loving is always worth it. This morning as we breathe, we remember the ones we love. Those still alive, those who have died, we remember the joy of being known and seen, of knowing and seeing. We remember the joy of being loved, of loving deeply. In the silence, we give thanks for these human hearts of ours, that although they break and break again, they also know over and over the thrill and pleasure and wholeness of love. May we remain ever open to the human experience, even when it breaks our hearts. So may it be. My colleague, the Reverend Joe Cherry, penned a very brief prayer titled, Prayer for Living Intention. And I want to share it at the start this morning. If we have any hope of transforming the world and changing ourselves, we must be bold enough to step into our discomfort, brave enough to be clumsy there, loving enough to forgive ourselves and others. May we, as a people of faith, be granted the strength to be so bold, so brave, and so loving. This prayer felt fitting for today as we talk again about racism and in particular about why it can be so hard for white people to talk about racism. And we have this conversation today using the book by Robin D'Angelo from which came our first reading. The topic is challenging and uncomfortable. Our second reading was written by Dr. Glenn Thomas Rideout, who is the music director, he's actually the director of music and worship at the First Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Ann Arbor. He is a black gay man, 
He leads amazing worship. You may recall that last year we showed a video of him leading a GA gathering in the song, I Need You to Survive. If you don't remember, go look it up at home and watch it. In the story in that reading, he shares this encounter he had at GA after worship with someone who had altered for herself the words there is, of the hymn, There is More Love Somewhere. And she wanted to know why we don't all sing this new version that reflected her found love in her Unitarian Universalist home. As he describes it, Dr. Rideout summons that post-worship, worship leader strength and answers her. The answer he gives isn't without challenge. He uses powerful language that might have gone by too quickly in the way I read it this morning. He suggests that we must, quote, enter and examine these songs with more curiosity than colonization. And that, quote, if we as a spiritual community of Unitarian Universalists, populated by well-meaning people, are to mean anything to the lives and deaths of people of color, we must begin by learning, not squelching, the forms of expression that arise from these living perspectives. There's so much to be learned from his response to the woman, but there's also something to be learned from the response the woman then gives back to him. She says, thank you. I've never heard it expressed that way. I've never understood it that way. And I will never sing it that same way again. That story could so easily have gone the other way. Nine times out of ten, it probably does go the other way. The woman might have gotten defensive and upset. I'm not a colonizer, she might have said. I'm not squelching anyone, she might have said. This is my perspective, my feeling, and I'm going to sing it how I want to sing it, she might have said. She might have responded with anger or hurt, and instead she answered with thoughtfulness, humility, curiosity. She responded not by digging in her heels, but by hearing him, like really, really hearing him, and being grateful that he was willing to take the time to explain and to offer her some perspective. So think back to the time for all ages. She went the direction of the final answer, right? The one that expressed gratitude and willingness to change, to transform, even though it might be difficult. She so easily could have offered up one of the other eight answers. In 2011, the professor and author Robin D'Angelo coined the term white fragility. The term has been popularized. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it in some degree. Her book, with that same term in the title, was printed by Beacon Press, our Unitarian Universalist publishing house, and it's remained on the bestseller list for over 40 weeks. Her work is challenging for many of us, but it's also vital as it points to a phenomenon that is not new, though the terminology is. Her articulation of this phenomenon helps us to understand some of the challenges that a congregation like ours, that is majority white, but aspiring to make progress in racial justice and to be welcoming to all, her work helps us to understand some of those challenges we face in actualizing those aspirations. Her work can help us serve our mission more honestly as we work to become the anti-racist people we want to be. In that first reading, Robin D'Angelo points to two regnant elements of Western culture. The individualism, right? So the focus on each of us as unique and unlimited, often expressed through myths of meritocracy, and objectivity, the notion that we can be without bias, 
that we can easily rise above conditioning, fears, socialization. Those two elements of our culture, she writes, make it especially challenging for white folks to dig into how we've been socialized. There's another element, though, that contributes to our struggle to do this work, and it's what she calls the good-bad binary. So the binary is the idea that only bad people participate in racism, and good moral people are not racist. So she writes, prior to the civil rights movement, it was socially acceptable for white people to openly proclaim their belief in their racial superiority. But when white northerners saw the violence black people, including women and children, endured during the civil rights protests, they were appalled. These images became the archetypes of racists. After the civil rights movement, to be a good moral person and to be complicit with racism became mutually exclusive. To accomplish this adaptation, racism first needed to be reduced to simple, isolated, and extreme acts of prejudice. These acts must be intentional, malicious, and based on conscious dislike of someone because of race. So D'Angelo was clear that making racism bad was a good thing, but the reductive nature of how it happened presents a challenge because the myth became that only ignorant, southern, mean-spirited folks were racist. And this means that to be accused of being racist and to be accused of being complicit in a racist system can be experienced as a cut straight to the heart of our sense of our own worth and goodness. Again, she writes, to suggest that I am racist is to deliver a deep moral blow, a kind of character assassination. Having received this blow, I must defend my character, and that's where all my energy will go, to deflecting the charge rather than reflecting on my behavior. In this way, the good-bad binary makes it nearly impossible to talk to white people about racism, what it is, how it shapes all of us, and the inevitable ways that we are conditioned to participate in it. So when the terms white supremacy and racism come up, white people are conditioned to hear these as, you are racist. And then the defense goes up, and we defend our very morality, but that defeats any desire we have to end racism. Meaning, we need to be able to see and understand the reality beyond, beyond the simple definition of racism as overt acts of prejudice and violence. So the idea here is twofold. The binary both encourages that foundation of individualism. If I'm not using racist language or telling racist jokes, if I believe that everyone is equal, then I am not racist. And the binary lets good white folks off the hook. I'm not a racist, I'm good, not one of those bad guys, there's nothing left for me to do. But the reality of racism is that it's not just individual acts of violence and prejudice. It's what we call systemic, structural, cultural. Most of us were not taught in school or in our families about systemic racism. We were taught colorblindness, or what D'Angelo terms color celebration. So colorblindness, yes, has anyone taught this? Colorblindness is used to make oneself an exception to systemic racism. I don't see color. You've heard people say that, right? I don't see color. I was taught to treat everyone the same. Color celebration is another way to create an exception. My school is so diverse. My family has people of color in it, and so on. In both cases, the idea is something about my attitudes or my learning or my positioning or my life 
means that I am not susceptible to the impact of systemic racism. But the absolute fundamental truth is that every single one of us is susceptible. By simple virtue of living in this country, we are in a system that is racist and complicit in a system that is racist. We are complicit in racism. That is not the same as saying you or you or you is a racist. It's saying America is founded on a history of racism and racially based violence and oppression, and that history has not been reckoned with for any of us. It is saying those of us who are white benefit from that history in ways that we are never even asked to recognize because we are the dominant culture, because we are socialized to see ourselves as the norm, because we are conditioned to expect the privileges of our whiteness and so see them as our due rather than as privileges. And all of that is where white fragility arises from, a culture of individualism and objectivity that denies in any complex way its history of racism and that continually socializes white folks to experience, as D'Angelo puts it, many conflicting, feel conflicting feelings toward African Americans, benevolence, resentment, superiority, hatred, and guilt that roil barely below the surface and erupt at the slightest breach yet can never be explicitly acknowledged. She goes on to say that white people's need to deny the bewildering manifestations of anti-blackness that reside so close to the surface make us irrational, and that irrationality is at the heart of white fragility and the pain it causes people of color. These factors come together to mean that most of us who are white grow up without ever having to confront our racial identity or the impact of race in our nation. White people are, as she puts it, insulated from race-based stress. She goes on, and I'm gonna quote again. Although white racial insulation is somewhat mediated by social class, with poor and working class urban whites being generally less racially insulated than suburban or rural whites, the larger social environment protects whites as a group through institutions, cultural representations, media, school textbooks, movies, advertising, dominant discourses, and the like. White people seldom find themselves without protection. Or if they do, it's because they've chosen to temporarily step outside their area of safety. But within their insulated environment of racial privilege, whites both expect racial comfort and become less tolerant of racial stress. So the habituation to comfort and safety, especially around race and identity, leads to white fragility that harmful response that makes it so hard for white people to truly find a way to become anti-racist. It is a state, she writes, in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. So come back for a minute to that exercise from the time for all ages. Those first eight responses were equivalent on some level to the defensiveness, the diverting, the argumentation, the fleeing of responses to questions, comments, ideas, and feedback that trigger white fragility. And those first eight responses were designed to shut down the person who's trying to help by pointing out the smudge on your face. Right? Abby's head went down like this after she got her response, right? 
The point is to shut it down. That's what white fragility does. It's a form, D'Angelo says, of bullying, the object of which is to make it so difficult and painful and dangerous for someone to call us on our complicity in a racist system that we no longer have to be confronted. It's a tool to maintain dominance. D'Angelo writes that it's not just whining or being defensive. She calls it a sociology of dominance. Quote, an outcome of white people's socialization into white supremacy and a means to protect, maintain, and reproduce that white supremacy. The responses that are born of white fragility work to maintain racism and a culture of oppression and dominance. Until we can move past the triggering into shame and fear and guilt and anger and denial, we will never be able to interrupt the system of oppression based on race that is baked into American society. In your order of service, you were given a half sheet um, with what amounts to a white fragility self-test. This is a small excerpt from a larger self-test that came from the New England Yearly Meeting of Friends Quakers in April 2019. And thanks go to Carol and Carolyn from our anti-racism committee for providing this resource to us all. I'm going to ask you to take a look at it. I am not going to ask you to answer these questions out loud or turn to your neighbor. Just look at them and try to be brutally honest with yourself. Take a minute. These are all signs of the phenomenon that D'Angelo recognizes and articulates so well. And for any of us who care about ending racism, these are self-defeating reactions and behaviors. So be brutally honest with yourself. can still look through them, but I want to share an example that helps illustrate what we're talking about. In a public Facebook post yesterday, just yesterday, and then in its comments section, a colleague of mine recounted a story, okay? So she tells of being at her gym and seeing a class come in wearing sombrero headbands that the instructor had handed out to the entire class. This colleague of mine wrote in her post, I felt sickened listening to all the white ladies, and I mean all of them, laugh. So in the bustle of students setting up, I spoke to the instructor quietly enough that nobody else could hear me. You're wearing someone's culture as a costume. My colleague goes on to report in her post that she felt terrible and it was awkward and it was uncomfortable and the instructor's body language got defensive and she crossed her arms and then the instructor simply said, thank you. But what's especially interesting about this story was the thread of comments that followed after the post. Pretty quickly after this post went up, a white woman responded. The gist was, as long as the intention was good, everyone just needs to calm down. She wrote, I'm not religious, but I celebrate Christmas with Santa and presents. I celebrate the Irish on St. Patrick's Day. I do not mean to be offensive to anyone. I'm simply enjoying some small things in my life the way I'd like to enjoy them. To me, the intention behind what is said or done is what matters. I'm excited to celebrate Cinco de Mayo. I may wear a mini sombrero while I drink a margarita. Who knows? But my intentions are in appreciation of the culture and nothing more. It doesn't matter as long as my heart is kind. That was her response. So already in that response, you can see defensiveness, right? She wants to do what she wants to do, 
And she's a kind, moral, good person, so clearly what she wants to do can't be wrong. It's the good-bad binary, it's the individualism, it's right there. The first person to reply to that woman's words was another colleague of mine who is a person of color. And she wrote, it does matter, and your intent does not overcome your impact. The first poster, again, rejoined with, essentially, our opinions are different and that's okay. I can celebrate Mexican culture however I want. She wrote that without responding at all to the person of color who had called her out on intent versus impact. Now the thread goes on at length. I will not recount the whole thing, but it comes to include the my Mexican friend told me it's okay line, as well as a bunch of false equivalencies, as well as the I love everyone line, and comments about how unduly sensitive everyone is these days, and that all we need is for people to be nice and everybody can just speak for themselves. The thread is like white fragility in action. It contains almost every one of those eight responses, right, before we get to the ninth good one. But the thread does contain the ninth good one, just as Dr. Rideout's story did. The original, original poster, my colleague, received feedback from a person of color that her posting this recounting of this story at the gym had smacked a bit of white saviorism. And so that colleague of mine said, thank you to our other colleague, updated her post to reflect that feedback and committed to meeting with her anti-racism coach about the experience, her processing of that experience, and her posting of it. White fragility makes it very hard for us white folks to move forward on our anti-racism journeys until we begin to recognize some fundamental truths. And so those eight responses that white fragility in action is gonna keep on happening until we start to recognize first that no one, no one who lives in this country now is exempt from the constant messages of racism that circulate around us. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you were taught, no matter what you believe, you and I, all of us, are subject to our culture of white supremacy and racism. Acknowledging that, D'Angelo writes, and I think this is true, is actually freeing. When we accept that fundamental truth, we are no longer forced to prove that we are not racist. We're no longer forced to defend ourselves. And instead, we're able to focus on the ways that white supremacist culture and racism manifest in our lives offering what privileges or challenges, creating what blind spots or forcing what conversations, offering what protection or what threat. D'Angelo writes, when we move beyond the good-bad binary, we can become eager to identify our racist patterns because interrupting those patterns becomes more important than managing how we think we look to others. Stopping our racist patterns must be more important than working to convince others that we don't have them. We do have them, and people of color already know we have them. Our efforts to prove otherwise are not convincing. An honest accounting of these patterns is no small task, given the power of white fragility and white solidarity, but it is necessary. That's how she puts it. Once white people acknowledge that it's not a question of whether or not we are complicit, but rather a question of how that complicity is manifesting, the next step is realizing that the white fragility response is possible in all of us. I won't ask you to admit it, but if you said yes to any of those things on the sheet, 
It means that a response of white fragility lives in you and can be activated. And I would venture to guess that every one of us in this room that is part of the white dominant culture would answer yes to at least one of those if we are truly and deeply honest. I did. While white fragility is a predictable response of white people in a culture in which whiteness dominates and white supremacy is upheld, it's not actually mandatory, right? It can be interrupted and shifted. Rather than retreating into defensiveness and anger and fear, D'Angelo suggests that when those white fragile feelings arise, one responds by breathing, listening, reflecting, seeking out someone who can help if you feel confused by the feedback or question or issue raised. She suggests taking time to process your feelings and to understand, but then to return to the person and the situation. The idea is to interrupt our white fragility, she says, and build our capacity to sustain cross-racial honesty by being willing to tolerate the discomfort associated with an honest appraisal and discussion of our internalized superiority and racial privilege. She's saying that we have to sit in our discomfort. And we're back where we started with Reverend Cherry's prayer. Discomfort isn't easy. And those of us who are white are not asked to be discomfited that often. We're taught implicitly and explicitly to understand ourselves as the norm, do certain privileges that we view as rights. We're taught to be colorblind and that to love everyone is a solution. We're taught to embrace the idea that we live in a post-racial society, but we're not owed any privileges. We don't live in a post-racial society. Whiteness has no right to be the norm against which everything else is measured. And the insulation of our whiteness is dependent upon the oppression of people of color. It's not easy stuff. It's not comfortable to say these things or to hear them. But I promise you, if we who are white can stay in the discomfort and breathe and listen and interrupt our own white fragility, we can have the chance to transform. We can live more in line with the values we espouse. We can live more in line with the beliefs we hold dear. We can actually make good on our mission to grow in mind and spirit and transform the world. But we have to be willing to approach this work with a tolerance for discomfort also with curiosity, especially with humility, with open hearts that are willing to hurt, with a true desire to end racism and have justice, and with a stamina to stay in it for the long haul because there is nothing less at stake than our own moral centers. Today, after services, we are going to continue the conversation about white fragility I encourage all of you to attend that conversation downstairs, whether you read the book or have not ever seen it before. And whether or not you can make the conversation today, I encourage you to read the book and check out the other resources that are on that half sheet that was in your order of service. I encourage you to join the Racial Justice Committee, find ways to educate yourselves and to begin the hard but necessary work of confronting your complicity in our racist culture. I have faith that we can do this work. May we be brave and curious and loving and open as we grope toward deeper understandings and toward a changed us and a changed world. So may it be. Please join in the words for extinguishing the chalice. They're printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame.
right in our hearts until we are together again. Again, I quote from Reverend Cherry, May we, as a people of faith, be granted the strength to be so bold, so brave, and so loving. May it be so. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.